it is now time for extension 720, so here's Milt Rosenberg. And a cordial good evening to all. Uh, this is our penultimate program, as many listeners know, uh, and it's one that I have indeed been looking forward to. Uh, David Dennis is our guest. He is professor of history at Loyola University in Chicago and the author of a really quite remarkable book titled In Humanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. When the Nazis came to power, they still didn't necessarily have an approving mass, uh, but they got one, and they got one by brainwashing a whole culture. How they brainwashed, what they did with the materials of Western culture so as to insinuate, or indeed to proclaim and demonstrate, that Nazism was the natural fulfillment of the long history of high Western culture is uh, it's one of the great confidence rackets ever pulled off uh, by uh, an illegitimate elite upon the people who uh, they subdued and uh, ultimately enslaved. But we shall hear about how the Nazis consolidated their power by Kultur, K-U-L-T-U-R, from David Dennis, right after the update on this evening's news. For that, to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. The Voice of Chicago, 720 WGN, Chicago. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. History, it has been often observed, contains many mysteries. History is a mystery. At least there are many unresolved mysteries in the great account of events and of uh, significant times and great surges of social change. And looking to the 20th century, there is no greater mystery than the rise and the consolidation of Nazism and then the dreadful works of Nazism wrought upon the body of Europe uh, before finally the end of the war. Um, how do you do that? How, in fact, do you get a people, the German people, essentially, to support the anti-Semitism, the barbarous assault in all directions on all peoples, and to think that somehow they're advancing a noble cause? Because that really did happen in Germany, not with every German citizen, but with many. That was, for a long time, a popular regime. That's uh, a question which is addressed by David B. Dennis in his new book, Inhumanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. You are in this book actually telling us how they brainwashed the German people. Well, let me first say it's an honor and a privilege to be on the show tonight. Well, thank you, especially sir. tonight. Um, um, well, the first stages of studying the, the uh, phenomenon of, of National Socialism and the rise of Nazism in Germany was, of course, the take a look at the political history and, and take into account all the social and economic background to that. And, and uh, historians concentrated on that into the mid-60s. Uh, but still it seemed to be open as to why people seemed to commit themselves so mm -hmm. intensively and to seem to attach their individuality to this movement uh, so, uh, so completely. Not all Germans, but those, uh, th those immediate followers especially. And... Um, People like George Mozzi and Fritz Stern uh, started to look for the answers, uh, not just in the data, not just in the political history, but in the, in the culture, and recognized that there was a cultural component to National Socialism, and uh, that it appealed uh, in a sense of providing people with a sense of order, with a sense of mission, with a sense of, of uh, a structured 
view of the world or what uh, George Mothry referred to as a well-ordered room. And in times of, uh, of economic dislocation, military defeat, um, uh, and uh, just the uh, confusions of modernization uh, that were general, not just German, uh, part of German experience, uh, he and Stern found, uh, as well as others, that um, um, uh, the symbolism of, of the movement uh, was as important as the policy and, and its promises. And uh, they also were able, the Nazis were, to recruit or to draw into Nazism many earlier writers, mu uh, composers, uh, artists, uh, who they claimed for Nazism. In, in essence, I gather, and this is part of your argument in the book, or it's the overall view, they represented themselves as the final fulfillment of all that was intrinsic in the best of European history. Well, um, you know, given this, this uh, general trend toward per developing a, a cultural appeal as well as a, as a specifically political one, um, they tapped into uh, uh, traditions that had been evolving since the mid-19th of mid century at least in Germany, or arguably since the uh, wars of liberation in uh, the beginning of the 19th century uh, against Napoleon when the notion of a German nation was consolidated. Um, so building on uh, uh, traditions of, of uh, asserting that uh, the German nation was, uh, could be defined in cultural terms, right? um, the Nazis um, uh, specified that their uh, application of those principles, their use of that culture, would uh, give modern Germans a sense of, uh, of, of their worthiness, a sense of their strengths, uh, hold a mirror up to them, an idealized vision of what the so how do you, people want. How do you do that with, for example, uh, Mozart, who's a very different kind of guy? He's playful, he's uh, somewhat, uh, uh, somewhat uh, vulgar in his own personal tastes, as we know. He's a glorious musician, and um, much of, uh, of his, if you turn to his operas, they have a good deal to do with freedom. Just as Beethoven has a great deal to do with freedom in his one opera, namely in Fidelio. Uh, and Beethoven has a great deal to do with the ideal of freedom and the, uh, the, uh, the taking down of the repressive state in uh, the story of uh, his third symphony, the Eroica, which supposedly he dedicated to Napoleon till he saw what a meanie Napoleon was and ripped up that dedication. There seems to be uh, an urge towards liberty, an urge towards personal human freedom and a resistance to the power of the state, uh, the authoritarian presence of the state in the works of many of the culture heroes of the Nazis. Well, the... Um, uh the main Nazi newspaper from which most of my material was drawn, yeah. uh, the cultural section, uh, would uh, would peruse, would, would, would analyze, would break, go into all of the records of, of each of these individuals, including Mozart and Beethoven, and selectively uh, emphasize uh, those aspects which were more in, in line with their authoritarian, militaristic, and uh, even uh, anti-Semitic First and foremost, they're looking for uh, anti-Semitism. It's kind of hard to find that in Mozart, whose three best operas were done, uh, the librettos were done by, by De Ponte, uh, yeah. who's a Jew. I, absolutely. And uh, I can, I can, uh, I'm glad to say they didn't find any 
thing that they could use against Mozart themselves, although they rejected Da Ponte as, uh, yeah. as a librettist, arguing that he uh, uh, was only uh, operating in order to make money. Um, which, of course, Mozart would never have done himself, yeah. but, uh, that, uh, and uh, even argued that the libretti that uh, de Ponte had written were rather weak. Of course, you do have some German writers and composers uh, who are overtly and strongly anti-Semitic. First and foremost among them has to be Richard Wagner, don't you think? Well, th throughout the the, uh, the cultural coverage of the main Nazi newspaper, which was the Volkische Beobachter, or Volkisch uh, Observer, um, references to Wagner appear uh, uh, almost every day, every article. And in many ways, they're interpretations of, of other cultural figures, including Beethoven and including Mozart, were drawn from uh, uh, Wagner's writings. And Wagner fulminates against the Jews uh, in whole volumes that he wrote, particularly their, their nasty, their sort of anti-cultural, their, uh, their decadent influence upon the arts and most especially upon music. Yeah, there's a particular article, uh, Judaism in Music, which uh, um, he published anonymously early in his career, but then had published again under his name. Uh, so there's no denying that he was responsible and uh, actually proud of that article. And it's an attack among, on various proposals, but most particularly upon a young composer who had done favors for Wagner and whom Wagner occasionally indulged, even though he was uh, concerned that this guy was a Jew and therefore he couldn't really be a great musician. That was Mendelssohn. That's right. Both Meyerbeer and Mendelssohn were quite helpful to, to Wagner, although yeah. he didn't think they'd helped enough. And... Uh, uh, because of the difficulties that he had early in his career, he felt that they were uh, embodied a conspiracy that was working against him, one that, one that was patently untrue. Uh, both have been uh, quite kind to him. By the way, do you have, this is something that's puzzled all sorts of people, and uh, you address it in the book, but it's not the basic uh, task of the book. Do you have any purchase on an ultimate explanation of the rise and the persistence of anti-Semitism from the, its beginning, probably in the first century A.D., through the Nazis and, for that matter, beyond, because it still lingers in the world. Well, as a student of George Mossy, I turned to his Toward the Final Solution as, yeah. uh, as, as sketching out that, uh, that, uh, that terrible uh, shift that took place during the 19th century from, a, uh, we'll say, a cultural and religious uh, animus into a racial mm -hmm. one. And I, I think that's key. Uh, what we what we hear in in humanities in the, in these articles is how they then took that racial uh, uh, variant of anti-Semitic hatred and uh, looked for indications that uh, it was prevalent in going all the way back, we'll say, to Luther and back to medieval uh, examples. Uh, and um, if it wasn't specifically articulated in terms of race then they would say, well, it was a prototype, it was an early version. Uh, it wasn't until this became uh, explicit yes, in the Jewishness becomes, becomes a biological blight. That's what, it's the biological for them, shift. For them. They're looking yeah. for that. And they're looking yeah. for uh, indications that their, their uh, preferred cultural figures would have agreed with that. Of course, the individuals where, who, you know, where they can find, whom, whom they find actually articulating that are the usual... Uh, folkish thinker. So it really is only people like Houston Stewart Chamberlain and Lagarde and Langben, Julius, Julius Langben, who are actually arguing that sort of thing. But they'll look for any, any kind of line in Goethe's work or um, uh, Nietzsche's work that might indicate that he mm -hmm. 
uh, he perceived uh, anti, uh, he perceived Jews not just as a cultural or a religious a religious enemy or outsider, but specifically in racial terms. So they are looking for that in the nineteenth century. And the weirdest part of all of this is that they. I, they really believed it. Or maybe they didn't originally, but they talked themselves into it. The Nazis themselves, I mean. Well, the the, the, the writers of these articles uh, range from uh, leading academics yeah. uh, to, uh, 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 to to uh, uh, critics and, 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 and newspaper men and journalists down to um, uh, authors who are probably doing just piecework. So the question as to how much every one of them really believed they were writing is still an open one, right? But, it's, but the, the, the lines of these arguments are, are quite clear. Yeah. The editors uh, working for the Volkische Beobachter, who contributed uh, dozens, if, if not more, articles, clearly uh, were, uh, were convinced of these principles. And, and we do have to remember that uh, they're coming out of a an intellectual tradition that had uh, developed over the 19th century, a Germanic version of Kultur, uh, laying claim to the best of Western culture, whether that happened to have taken place in Italy or France as Nordic or German or, or Aryan. Uh, and uh, this would not have seemed um, uh, unfamiliar, even when, to the general readers at the time. It was in the air by the 20s. When they uh, draw up the Nazi... Uh, the tripartite pact between uh, Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and Japan. Somebody, was it Hitler himself or somebody, declares the Japanese to be, quote, honorary Aryans. <laughs> well, honorary it was, but that would be the, one of the few cases where they you know, didn't actually make a specific claim to something, such as the ancient Greeks yeah. or the Italian Renaissance. Um, uh, precursors, Houston Stuart Chamberlain being one, uh, uh, a man named Ludwig Volsmann, were laying claim to the uh, the greatest creative uh, periods in Western the culture. The truth is that some great, harm can, some great harm can be done, and often is done, by people who are, quote, intellectuals. You can... Uh, uh, the professoriate, whether based in universities or merely in journalism, uh, but those men of ideas are often easily bought, easily tricked, easily flattered, easily paid off, and easily utilized for the worst possible purposes of the political elites. We, we will see more of that as we continue. And we'll look at some more particular cases uh, in our examination of the new book by David Dennis, In Humanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. That's published, by the way, by Cambridge University Press. And we return right after these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return to David B. Dennis, professor of history, Loyola University, author of the new book, Inhumanities, the Nazi interpretations of Western culture. I offer you a quotation which you will recognize instantly. Um, and I'll do it in German. Ich weiß nicht, was soll es bedeuten, dass ich so traurig bin. Ein Märchen aus alten Zeiten kommt mir nicht aus dem Sinn. What is that? That's the Lorelei. Ah. <clears throat> and uh, that's uh, the struggle over that song. Uh, the Lorelei, the golden-haired maiden who, who uh, lures fishermen and uh, boatmen to their death <coughs> with her golden tresses. Uh, uh, that 
is a song that was sung uh, as you voyaged up and down the Rhine, because she's on the Rhine, uh, by all Germans. It's one of the beloved songs. I, I imagine it still is, though. I'm not sure of that. But it was by Heinrich Heine, who unfortunately was a Jew. And the well, Nazis kept thinking it. Yeah, well, this is uh, one of these examples of uh, the, the sort of contortions that the, the uh, contributors of Volkischer Beobachter had to put themselves through, we'll say, or so put their you, reader through. What do you do in a case like it, that? Well, um, uh, in, in this sense, they, did t they tapped into the argument uh, that Wagner had made in this, mm. uh, in this notorious uh, article on Judaism and music, and where he had indicated that... Um, Whereas uh, individuals like Meyerbeer and Mendelssohn were able to insinuate themselves into German culture, uh, they did so as imitators, as, as plagiarists, essentially. Um, uh, and, uh, and this is the kind of argument that was used against Heine, that uh, uh, while um, they could not deny that a number of Heine's poems, his love poems, as well as uh, Lorelei and some others, had become... Uh, uh, standard part of the uh, romantic canon, um, uh, they were uh, they were they were, they were manufactured. They were the effort of a very clever Jew uh, to uh, to imitate uh, German style. And then they that, went through and criticized the style anyway. Part of that cleverness is indicated in the mere fact that he Heine, like many other German Jews, had converted to Christianity. Well, that's true, and. Uh, um, he uh, he gave them some ammunition in the sense that he uh, uh, complained about that later and made some uh, wonderfully uh, sarcastic statements about what it you know, what it, what it had taken for him to uh, become part of German uh, culture and society and the and the cost that that had uh, uh, that he had paid to do that. But um, um, who are the Jews ranking high in the history of the German arts up to the time that the Nazis took over? Uh, Heine is one. Who else would uh, be in that disturbing panoply of the, Jewish German artists? Well, they, they, of course, they have difficulty with the moderns. They have difficulty with Mahler and Schoenberg uh, directly and uh -huh. attack them uh, viciously. Um, uh, another is Ludwig Borne, whom they, uh, a, a contemporary of of of, uh, of Heine, um, Moses Mendelssohn. Uh, in the 18th century, um, is uh, uh, the uh, the model for an important play by Lessing, uh, Nathan Dewan. Yes, indeed. Right. And uh, in that case, uh, they uh, accused uh, Mendelssohn of being a uh, a plagiarist, of of having really borrowed his ideas, and uh, Lessing of has has having been confused and sort of tricked by him into thinking that he was so wise. Uh, that he would write this uh, important... Uh... When the Nazis come to power uh, in German music and in German uh, literature and in the German visual arts, so to speak, there are a number of very prominent Jewish artists, are there not? Well, another that they go after and is Hans Liebermann, in, in, uh, Impressionist, and uh, in their attack on Impressionism, mm -hmm. they are... Uh, uh, disturbed by its super superficiality. They argue that it's uh, certainly not something that uh, the German soul would be interested in because unlike expressionism, which they have very conflicting views about ultimately, but uh, uh, feel is, uh, is still in tune with this romantic uh, soul-searching, 
Um, they uh, criticize uh, Impressionism as, uh, as uh, non-German. And then quickly point out that uh, Max Liebermann is a Jew and uh, the leading purveyor of Impressionism in Germany. There's a famous scene in Berlin, I guess, shortly after they come to power, uh, where they're burning books, literally burning books, in a great bonfire. I think it's Joseph Goebbels who's leading them in this exercise and uh, tossing one book, announcing one book and ripping out his pages and throwing it on the fire. Uh, Sigmund Freud, of course, was sure. one of the burned books. Who else was burned that night? Or who else is likely to have been thrown into the flames? Well, I would think Mendelssohn for sure. I would think that uh, uh, Moses Mendelssohn, for instance, going yeah. back. And um, uh, the works of uh, someone like Al Alfred de Blin in, uh, in the contemporary period. Uh, um, 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 I'm not but, sure if Thomas Mann was, if it was already ostracized in that sense. But, of course, they didn't uh, stop Heinrich only with... Mann is someone, that, someone whom they would... And they didn't stop only with, with German Jews. Jewish works generally were consigned to the fire and uh, were categorized as intrinsically anti-cultural and anti-Aryan and uh, ultimately surreptitiously decadent. Or if, if not themselves responsible for it, somehow responsible for, uh, for Germans who were producing that sort of thing. So they were, if, if not you know, implicated directly, then they were held responsible for a conspiracy of, fa of foisting this modernism onto uh, who, who Germans. Who would some of those have been? The foisters. Uh, well, people like Maximilian Hodden would be someone that they would have gone after, uh, journalists of that sort. But it's always a shadowy uh, reference. It's not, it's not that specific. Mm -hmm. The Mossi Verlag, for instance, the newspaper, the Ulstein Verlag, the, um, they're, they're going after concerns like that. Uh, Those are Jewish publishers. Jewish publi publishers and newspaper yeah. uh, uh, publishers. Exactly. It is interesting to note that in... The Jewish population of Germany when the Nazis took over was about one-half of one percent of the total population. Uh, yet, to be sure, they were of considerable prominence in the professions. And that was one of their further complaints. Uh, and somehow that's part of a grand conspiracy, rather than an index of perhaps significant talent. Well, there's, there's, it's clear in the history of, of, of National Socialist anti-Semitism that they're blaming them for, for really all the ills of modernization, mm -hmm. whether it be capitalism and industrialization and modernization or left-wing criticism of that. So, you know, it, it, was, it, was, it was a broad brush that they painted them. How, do they, how in fact, do they uh, clarify that both Jews are responsible both for capitalism and its evils and for socialism and its evils. Well, they can, honestly, they can say the same thing in, in, in the same paragraph, and they didn't seem to see any contradiction in that, because they would lump that together of both evils uh, of modernization. And uh, uh, if, if, uh, uh, if one was uncomfortable with, uh, with modern existence in general, um, it was easy to point to a yeah. single enemy, which, of course, Hitler had called for in Mein Kampf to simplify things, provide you know, a, a, a single target that clarified things for the movement. And, of course, at that point, we, we wondered, did, did Hitler, in writing that, was he aware that he was uh, essentially admitting that, that he was, uh, he, he was uh, uh, producing a, the big lie? Right. But he seems to have believed it at the same time. 
Of course he believed it. Yeah. Right? So yeah. he understood the power of that. He understood the, the impact that it could have on his followers and the fact that it could be used as a tool, um, but at the same time seemed to be absolutely have been uh, convinced of I had well. a fascinating, fascinating conversation years ago with a great historian of Nazism and of Hitler, Alan Bullock, uh, who did one of the first great political biographies of Hitler shortly after the end of World War II. And he draws some very interesting distinctions on the question of whether Hitler believed it all from the beginning or whether uh, it was a fake, a fake which became real. I'm, I want to tell you more about that and get your reaction to it. Uh, I wish, in fact, I had dug up our uh, little voice clip uh, on Bullock explaining Hitler as mountebank or Hitler as uh, authentic. But I'll tell you, we'll talk more about that as we continue right now to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And back to David B. Dennis, uh, professor of history at Loyola University and author of the new book, Inhumanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. Uh, Hermann Goering, second in command of the Nazi regimes during most of its years, says, I joined the party because I was a revolutionary not because of any ideological nonsense, <laughs> suggesting that he kept his distance even from the anti-Semitism. We know that second-in-command of the German Air Force, and he, uh, Goering, ran the German Air Force for all of those years, was a man who was half-Jewish, uh, General Edvard Milch, though he was officially given uh, the... Uh, entered into the category of uh, fully Jewish because Hitler could see that in, in his eyes or in, in the picture of him. But his... Uh, his father was was Jewish. There are a number of uh, Mischling, as they call them, mixed Jew-German uh, types who rise fairly high in the military. But that's all by the side and by the by. But uh, that quote from Goering raises the question of whether Hitler was also not always quite as ideological uh, in ter terms of what he internalized as he later may have become. I mentioned Alan Bullock, great historian, Bullock had a big argument with Trevor Roper, another great English historian interested in the Nazis, about whether Hitler believed all that junk. And he, Bullock, argued, no, no, I think he was a mountebank at the beginning. He was faking it. Uh, Anti-Semitism was a, a way to power. It was very popular among the German masses, becoming more and more so after uh, the, uh, uh, the defeat in World War I. And uh, they used it, and they used a lot of their other weird stuff just to gain power and to mobilize the people. Uh, but it was all a put-on, uh, essentially as, a, for, as the route to power. But Trevor Roper said, no, no, from the very beginning, Hitler had rectitude, Trevor Roper's term. He believed in the truth of what he was saying, particularly about the Jews, but in general, all of his uh, totalitarian uh, vision was... Uh, was characterized by rectitude. He believed this was the truth and the truth that he served and that he would advance to the greater glory of truth and the greater glory of the supreme race, namely the, the Aryans. Bullock, when he was on this program a good 20 years ago perhaps, or a memorable occasion, said that he had come around to Trevor Roper's view. Not that Hitler had rectitude from the beginning, but if you spout lies long enough and get rewarded for it and come to power by spouting those distortions, ultimately you have to internalize them and believe the junk that you've been parading out or peddling out. Well, 
Each section of, uh, of Inhumanities uh, opens with a, a, w- one of the famous statements uh, of, uh, by uh-huh. Hitler on, on one or other of these issues, of these themes, uh, that, uh, that, that, that politics should be uh, political, that, de- that uh, Germans are the great creators, that, uh, um, that there should be a folkish or, or a popular dimension to all great intellectual work, no matter how elite and so forth. Um, and uh, many of those are from his early speeches and in his early writings, and uh, uh, laid out, uh, out a schema. And I think what we're seeing in this book is, is what a more recent historian and, and uh, biographer of Hitler is focused on, which is working toward the Fuhrer. Uh-huh. And so, um, you know, given those general guidelines, given those general principles or themes, uh, what we see here is the effort on the part of uh, individual authors at whatever level, whether academic or just doing peace work uh, to, to make a living uh, by throwing an occasional article into the Focus of Beobacht. We don't know. Many of these are by anonymous. Um, but uh, they're, they're adding detail to these positions. They're, 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 this seems to be how they're contributing to the the development of, of, the, of this ideology. Let's examine one particular case, somebody who had to be interpreted and reinterpreted and was very important in the Nazi artistic pantheon, namely Ludwig van Beethoven. Uh, what's the presenting problem when they start? What do they make of Beethoven over the years? Well, the, the, uh, this is a fascinating case um, in, uh, in that uh, uh, s- certain... Uh, Pseudoscientists of, of genetic uh, uh, racism um, had argued that uh, Beethoven just didn't appear Aryan enough. Didn't look he, Aryan. He, was, he did not look Aryan enough. And uh, neither did and, Hitler. <laughs> as a well, of, of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, and uh, the Volkerschop Beobachter and its contributors uh, uh, recognized that uh, it would uh, be. Uh, uh, unacceptable to uh, re- uh, reject uh, such an important figure. And so they started to uh, re- literally re- rewrite Beethoven's physical appearance, uh, contradicting uh, contemporary observations. You mean they made him, blo- had, they made him blonde? They made they? him blue-eyed. Blue-eyed, They made him blue-eyed, and they argued that his skin was uh, swarthy because he'd spent a lot of time walking outside and, uh, and so forth. And other issues were his... Um, his, uh, you know, uh, as you indicated, his his association uh, with uh, um, uh, French revolutionary notions that he brought to uh, Vienna with uh, from from the Rhineland, and um, uh, certain statements that could be associated with the uh, with the socialism and the left ultimately, which it, which they, he was. Um, and the point uh, in many of these cases that the focus of Beobachter was trying to make was that the left had la- laid claim or the liberalism had laid claim to, to and, and, and told a particular story, and that, but this story had been skewed, that the truth of, of the matter was uh, that Beethoven was fundamentally a patriot, that he had, uh, uh, he had, he had uh, suffered from revolutionary fever, uh, as a youth, but uh, ultimately uh, came around, especially with reference to Napoleon. And it wasn't that Napoleon the liberator, it wasn't Napoleon the, uh, 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 the, the man of talent that had risen up, but, but Napoleon the strong leader, uh, the man of will, uh, that who could provide order and stability that the Nazis argued 
Beethoven respected and ultimately celebrated. And what did they do with the music itself? I mean, the, the very tonality and structure of the great symphonies, of the one great opera, of the, uh, the wonderful chamber music. Do they find somehow Aryan truth in, say, the pastoral symphony, the sixth? Well, they, most Beethoven reception focuses on the, the Beethoven of, of, of overcoming. So the third the fifth, up, up through the ninth. And the ninth? And, 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 and uh, skipping over the set, sixth and the seventh and some of the more lyrical pieces. Uh-huh. Um, so it's, uh, it's a, a man of, of will. It's this, this, this uh, uh, overcoming of struggle, uh, this, uh, this overcoming of obstacles through struggle, um, this, um, uh, the story, of course, of his overcoming mm-hmm. his deafness, uh, and, in the, and in the particular case of, uh, of the Nazis, of, uh, of, uh, of overcoming that original case of a revolutionary fever. And they read that into the music itself. So he evolved towards his true Aryan nature. Well, they would never have denied that it was always, it was always there. I mean, another you know, but, strange story regarding Beethoven yeah. was that uh, 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 some had questioned uh, whether his father... Uh, might have been sterilized because of his alcoholism. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the the actor comes to uh, uh, the rescue by arguing that, uh, well, you know, in the Rhineland, uh, uh, drinking and frolicking is a, is, a, is, a, is a central part of the of the culture. So his father would uh, was was not really in, uh, exceptional in that sense. And by by, by the way, that by the time he became a serious alcoholic, Beethoven had already been born. So they. They, they move right around that. Time. You are, as you know, talking with a guy named Rosenberg. There's another Rosenberg in the picture, Alfred Rosenberg, a man of great significance to understand the intellectual structures that the Nazis tried to build to represent themselves as the inheritors of the best in Western culture from the Greeks on forward, and that they somehow represented the manifestation of all that was good and true and noble in the great Aryan race which is the sub- supreme race uh, for all the world. Alfred Rosenberg, who was, I believe, for some while, the editor of the Volkische Beobachter. We need to talk about him and, and about his uh, great work, in quotes, the myth of the 20th century, in which he lays out ultimate Nazi philosophy. Uh, directly back to uh, David Dennis after we pause for these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And so I've raised the name of, uh, of a, a better-known Rosenberg, Alfred Rosenberg. <laughs> but uh, unlike the Rosenberg who's talking, his life ended with his being hung at Nuremberg. I, I don't anticipate such a fate for myself. Some people may, may be surprised that there's a Rosenberg who's a great Nazi. It's a basic, uh, it's a German name. It's an East Prussian name, basically. Uh, many Jews adopted it, obviously, along the road. But there are lots of uh, Aryan Rosenbergs uh, in the history of the Third Reich and in the history of modern Germany. Uh, there's also a Rosenberg um, uh, white wine uh, from the Rhine, a Rosenberg something else. Uh, and it's not a bad wine. I've encountered it and I bought it, bought, bought about three or four bottles of it. But on to Alfred. He was officially the philosopher of the Nazi party. What did that mean? Well, it, it, most evidently, he put together a, a, a notoriously cryptic uh, book, the, the Myth of the Twentieth Century, um, where which is essentially a, a sort of uh, 
uh, revision of uh, Houston Stewart Chamberlain's also cryptic uh, foundations of the 19th century. And he's a, uh, Houston Stewart Chamberlain is a, is a very famous, famously nasty uh, pseudo scientific. Uh, British anti-Semite. That's right. He 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 was uh, from Britain, but then became utterly uh, fascinated with Wagner and yeah. uh, ended up in Bayreuth and one of the uh, leading figures in the Bayreuth circle. Uh, and um, if there's a if there's a bridge uh, that uh, connects Hitler to uh, Wagner, it's Houston Stewart Chamberlain, uh -huh. who. Uh, uh, depending on your position on Wagner's uh, anti-Semitism or responsibility for that, uh, incorporates Wagnerian ideas and then uh, develops much of what we're talking about here. So, what do we have from Rosenberg himself? What does he What, what does he proclaim? Well, he does step in. He's the uh, it, in this case, he's, he's significant in that he was the editor in chief of the Völkische Beobachter from 1923 until 1938. That so was a daily newspaper. Period. Daily newspaper. Yeah, that's right. So the most the most fully read newspaper in all of Germany. A national paper. It was a national paper by uh, by the Nazi air, by the Third Reich. It's it's the prominent yeah. paper in the yeah. nation now. Uh, the the Vorwärts was uh, of course the important socialist paper and had a huge readership as well. And mm -hmm. we have to remember that this this book isolates what the Nazis were doing with this material. And uh, for for evident reasons, it's a if it's it's of particular interest. But in my earlier work on Beethoven reception, I I, I covered the fact that uh, most of the major political parties were bickering over whether or not he could be claimed as part of their legacy. Yeah, yeah. Now that uh, they weren't all as as comprehensive as the Volkischer Beobachter, but. Uh, uh, this was something that uh, it should, has to be understood within that context. We have uh, a quote from Rosenberg. Yes, yeah, well, Rosenberg occasionally would grace <laughs> the, the pages of the Volkischer Beobachter with his own uh, editorials, even in the uh, in the cultural section. And uh, one of the well, it just gives you an example of the sort of of, of the of the uh, of the the tricky nature of his thing. But um, uh, the so-called philosopher of, of the NSDAP. Um, uh, wrote about uh, uh, the Renaissance leaders, and particularly um, uh, Da Vinci and Michelangelo, the follow. Um, from its uh, passages on mysticism and deed came material identifying the dynamic German nature that ostensibly underlies all Western creativity. More concerned with action than contemplation, Roosevelt, Rosenberg uh, felt, uh, uh, above all others, Meister Eckhart, Beethoven, and Goethe exemplified his murky aesthetic theory. But echoing Voltmann, he also included Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo in his collection of the exemplary great men of the Nordic West. In his view, Leonardo manifested a synthesis of spirituality and practicality fundamental to the Nordic soul and the two facets of his creative impulse. On the one side, the artist conjured up a transcendental world, as in his holy Anna, in the eyes of his John the Baptist, and the face of his Christ. But simultaneously, he was an engineer, a cool-headed technician, who devised inventions to make nature serviceable to man. Therefore, according to Rosenberg, many of Leonardo's ideas might well have originated from that other Nordic genius, Goethe, and so forth. You see this sort of uh, uh, management of contradictions. Right, that it took to to press these uh, notions towards something that he was calling a Nordic uh, soul. Because Goethe is crucial to this whole history, is he not? To this whole analysis of Nazi Kultur, because he is. Uh, would people generally agree when it comes to literary figures in Germany, he still ranks as 
perhaps the prime writer in the whole uh, in the whole literature of Germany from the midi- medieval days down to the present moment. Well, essential to what's uh, uh, c- considered gebildet or, mm-hmm. or, or, or cultivated. And this is really what uh, uh, these articles were dedicated to demonstrating, that was that for its revolution, uh, for all uh, of its mm-hmm. revolutionary aspects, National Socialism was still respectable. And here's, it, it, there's, a, some, there's something of a taming of the, of the, of the image of the, of the party going on here, where they want to demonstrate that they are intellectually legitimate, that they are gebildet, they are part of this tradition of Bildung. And, of, and Goethe was absolutely... Sensitive. You've read Goethe quite closely, I'm sure. What's your understanding of what Goethe represents in German literature, what he represents in human thought? Well, from Werther... Uh, the sorrows of young Werther. The sorrows of young Werther. Of course, we have the the, the, the beginnings of the of the uh, Sturm, Sturm und Drang uh, response to this modernization process, and an indication that uh, uh, that uh, the individual may need to turn to a heightened state of spirituality, um, and uh, p- p- developing this image of a young man based perhaps on himself. Um, uh, in search for something higher, driving himself to an uh, uh, emotional connection to so a, it's the young a romantic woman, up the, to the point of sort of suicide. the suffering romantic. Interestingly, though, yeah. almost no reference to Werther at all in any of the Volkischer Beobachter. Well, as it happens, Werther ends with Werther's the suicide. The, with the suicide. So yeah. this part of Goethe's work they ignore. Then, of course, uh, most famously, uh, Goethe's Faust. This part of, uh, is part of it, but it's not. It's not understood as a as a complex uh, 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 representation of the of the modern soul yearning and and, and never to be satisfied uh, that uh, that at least modern interpreters have uh, have emphasized, but rather this this will, this drive, uh, and uh, the focus is more on the, in the second half of the of the of the of the play, not the first half where he's. Uh, uh, responsible for, for Gretchen's uh, uh, disquiet and ultimate destruction, but rather uh, uh, compared with the uh, the emperor figure and, set, and and identified as being capable of making decisions, <laughs> of, of, of um, imposing his will in this powerful way, and therefore the model for a Fuhrer type. So Faust uh-huh. becomes the model for the Fuhrer type. Right. Even though Faust is ultimately damned. And Faust, after all, has made a pact with the devil, and ultimately the devil collects. <laughs> well, now you're 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 you're, uh, you're th- 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 we'll have to think together here for a moment. Now, didn't after so many years of thinking about it and carrying that uh, play around in his uh, leather satchel, I think Goethe decided that in the end Faust was going to be saved. Yes, I'm thinking of the Marlowe, <laughs> Marlowe's Doctor Faustus, I guess, That's rather right. than Goethe's Faust. Yeah. But, but nonetheless. Um, but interestingly, uh, aside from uh, uh, focusing on Faust and Faust as a Führer type rather than a seeker and uh, uh-huh. uh, someone uh, worthy of damnation, if, if not ultimately damned, um, uh, the, the main thrust of the Volkischer Beobachter's uh, uh, Goethe coverage was that not enough attention was paid to his letters. And there, uh, they argue, one very selectively, through very selective reading, uh-huh. can find that 
that uh, despite his reputation as being an internationalist, of being a, a proto-liberal, of someone of a, of a cosmopolitan nature, that he was fundamentally a, a German patriot, uh, that he was comfortable with military uh, uh, requirements and, and uh, military culture, um, and, uh, uh, and even uh, had qualms about... Uh, <laughs> intermarriage between uh, Germans and, uh, and Jews. And on that last, you do find a, uh, a letter in which he does They object. find a letter, and, they, yeah. and then they argue that this is absolutely central, which is, yeah. which, which is basically the pattern that we see here, that this has been overlooked. It's been overlooked because of a, a, a Jewish-driven conspiracy to minimize the, the coverage of, of texts such as So this. for every one of their culture heroes, they've got to find... Uh, They've got to track back to find some anti-Semitism. That's their modus operandi. And they always succeed. Usually. Not in the case of Mozart, but... Uh, that would be a hard one, yeah. yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's, uh, and, uh, uh, or Brahms, or... Uh, for instance, in Brahms' case, there's no indications that he was uh, himself... Uh, they didn't, there's nothing in the Fulkischer Beobachter. Yeah. I'm not Brahms' expert enough to know whether he did, because, <laughs> but he did have many... Uh, Jewish friends and in, in his uh, in his circle and supporters, but the the uh, the Beobachter argues that the um, the supposed competition or the opposition between Brahms and Wagner was uh, the responsibility yeah. of Jewish uh, uh, critics Edward Hansley. Have you ever seen uh, the uh, film of the last concert by the Berlin Philharmonic before the fall of Berlin? Fortwängler is conducting, and he's conducting Beethoven's Ninth. Mm -hmm. And they're all sitting there, uh, Nazi dignitaries and military and their wives, they're all sitting there huddled in coats and fur coats and so mm -hmm. on, because there's no heating in the hall. Uh, but there is the orchestra and a chorus doing the great Ninth. The, the, and Beethoven's Ninth, the Ode to Joy, was somehow for the Nazis, after Wagner, the most perfect music of all, wasn't well, it? Well, there was some debate about that. that oh, was there? Can, yeah, yeah, one can track a sort of um, uh, uh, initial uh, discomfort with the, with the fact that uh, ultimately the Ode to Joy indicates this sort of universal brotherhood. Yeah. And the thing to keep in mind all is that performances... Alle Menschen werden Brüder. All men will become brothers. That's right. And... Uh, uh, the thing to keep in mind is that the, uh, the socialists and, uh, had, uh, uh, as I said, developed their own cultural politics uh, yeah. uh, earlier than uh, the, the, the National Socialists did. And uh, performances of the Ninth Symphony were central to that. And mass uh, performances with, uh, with huge uh, choirs brought together yeah. uh, from across the socialist community. And so the, the Nazis had to work hard to rest the Ninth Symphony, arguing that this band that will that will embrace uh, humanity will it's is 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 uh, it's going to specifically uh, bring Germans together, and it will take place uh, once Hitler came to power and the, and the Third Reich. A common term goal. they use is the Kulturkampf, the culture the culture struggle, and I guess then from what you said, the culture struggle was to whom. Do various important culture figures belong to the Nazis or to the socialists? Absolutely, Every, I, I would say, especially in the cases of of, uh, of people like Beethoven and Goethe yeah. and and, and, and uh, so forth. This is this is ongoing. What the, what what you're 
what you would read in this book is the, is the Nazi side of this. Yeah. And uh, they're not wrong that there was a socialist side to the argument, uh, but they're, uh, they're adamant that, yeah. uh, that this needed to be cleared up. We, uh, somebody they paid special attention to in the realm of science was indeed a Jewish gentleman named Einstein. And we might look at what they made of Einstein, or what they did about Einstein, who was the leading physicist of Germany as the Nazis came to power. We'll pursue that in related matters as we continue right now to the WGN Newsroom and Paula Cooper. The Voice of Chicago, 720 WGN, Chicago. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. And directly back to David Dennis. We've been drawing from his excellent new book, richly, richly uh, annotated with uh, many separate cases in the cultural comp, the culture struggle to capture all of the best of Western culture and claim that it uh, in a way predicts and uh, surges toward the ultimate realization of Nazism. Uh, Inhumanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture, uh, just recently published by uh, Cambridge University Press. They also uh, undertook to do this not only with the arts, with music, literature, the graphic arts, but also with science itself. Yes, um, there, we have references uh, in the Volkischer Beobachter to, to Newton and uh, uh, an argument that uh, his was a Nordic science, but still some discomfort that it shifted things too much toward the mechanical and uh, not enough toward the, the spiritual. Uh, and uh, ultimately, this sort of manifests itself to, in um, a very strong critique of, uh, of Einstein. Who was, I think, the best known and the leading physicist in Germany at the time the Nazis come to power. Well, the, the Volkischer Beobachter complains about that fame. What do, they, that, what do uh, they say? Well, we have him as uh, more a media sensation than a scientific researcher. And his theory, uh, despite the high praise according, uh, accorded it, provided nothing of any value. The only new thing about it was the mathematical form in which it expressed its futility. Unfortunately, theorists like Einstein were presumed to be making major contributions, while experimental researchers were perceived as nothing but handymen. Um, it was strange that Einstein's course of research had become established and validated in Germany. In response, the paper held that it was necessary to preserve a homeland, to preserve a homeland for the German spirit that strove for truth and clear insight by refusing any further advancement of this arid, ghostly, anti-spirit that had nothing to do with true scientific research. Uh -huh. One practical payoff is whether it leads to new and useful technologies. <laughs> Einstein's work did lead, though it wasn't his, uh, it, it wasn't the, the thing of which he was most proud, did lead to the, new, to the atom bomb originally. Well, I'm looking to here to see exactly what year that was written. Um, but it, we can see already here the seeds of the fact uh, that was 1923. Uh -huh. So they're rejecting him outright in 1923, yeah. and we can see there the seeds of the fact that uh, uh, their their development of something like the uh, atomic bomb. Would they quite hindered. captured some of the other scientific and and uh, borderline scientific disciplines, including the one that uh, I know best, psychology. There, uh, there are two guys, they were twins, actually, the Jensch brothers, both of whom were very well-established psychologists in Germany, one at Leipzig and the other, I'm not sure where, possibly at, uh, uh, 
possibly uh, in Berlin. I don't know. But the Ench brothers did a good deal of work together. They were identical twins, as it happens. Uh, they published separately, but they also published together. And they did some books uh, well into the Nazi regime uh, explaining the racial superiority of Aryans, explaining the biological degeneracy of Jews and the sickness of the Jewish spirit as evidenced in their personalities and in their works and ways generally. It was a full, full endorsement, verification, and, quote, scientific uh, supportive document for uh, Nazi racial theory. And they weren't alone in doing this. This was generally something which uh, German psychology went along with. Something else, of course, that was killed off in Germany rather quickly was the burgeoning pseudoscience, because it also was a pseudoscience, but it flourished elsewhere in the world for a while and flourished particularly in the United States for many, many years, namely psychoanalytic therapy. Well, interestingly, there aren't... Uh, I didn't find any uh, significant articles specifically about Freud. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the background of, of, of a number of these critiques of, uh, of, um, of uh, the, the perceived enemies of the, of the, of the Nazis, um, uh, there, there's, there's the insinuation that they're suffering from some of these, these diseases uh, uh, theorized by Freud. Um, you know, two cases that where he comes up is where, famously, uh, Thomas Mann uh, gives a lecture uh, uh, providing a Freudian analysis of, uh, of some of Wagner's work, and this is one. Mm -hmm. of, this is what really tipped the scale and made it impossible for him to return safely. Uh, so these cultural issues uh, really played themselves out specifically mm -hmm. in something like the case of Thomas Mann. Uh, but um, uh, in the uh, in the coverage of Mahler, of Gustav Mahler, the mm -hmm. composer. Uh, uh, the the Folkische Beobachter comes down on the fact that basically this is uh, you know Jewish self analysis and uh, constitutes a, a, a psychopathus musicalis rather than a psychopathus uh, sexualis. So well, Wagner laid that line down for them a long time before that notion. Yes, yeah. but there they they incorporate Freudian uh, oh I see, I see. terms <laughs> and and and, yeah. and uh, directly. Uh, 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 attack uh, Mahler in those terms, who had, in fact, uh, had a, a meeting once with uh, with Freud in, 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 his, in his personal quest. But yeah. that said, the the music is, is of Mahler is associated with Freud in that uh, in that vicious sense. Which other uh, modern musicians did they reject? Well, Schoenberg is is uh, is, is clearly perceived yeah. as uh, the the equivalent of, of Einstein in this sense. Uh, you know, this is a, not the direction that uh, uh, that German music should be going. Um, uh, another uh, Ernst Krenek uh, mm -hmm. is someone whom they uh, they attack uh, viciously, and uh, uh, particularly a piece called uh, Johnny spielt auf. Johnny strikes up. This was a. Uh -huh. uh, this was a, uh, what's known as a Zeit Opa, uh, yeah. uh, uh, opera of the times, which included uh, jazz uh, rhythms and jazz tunes and uh, 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 portrayed a, uh, uh, a lead character that played saxophone and, in blackface. Well, <clears throat> the, the Nazi attacks on this were the, uh, really the, the, uh, uh, the equivalent uh, in terms of me media attention uh, that uh, they, they received when they attacked uh, All Quiet on the Western Front and the film that came of that. Um, 
they uh, they uh, spilt a lot of ink attacking Johnny Spielt Auf and uh-huh. then uh, demonstrated in front of its uh, performances, just as they demonstrate in, in front of the or, uh, openings of uh, of uh, All Quiet on the West. Somehow that brings to mind something. I don't know why I'm free associating this, but the 1936 Olympics mm-hmm. in Berlin. And the great embarrassment to them that a true underrace, Unterrasse, uh, namely uh, blacks, Africans, uh, so dominated the the prizes uh, in Berlin in 1936. Jesse Owens is the is the best case in point. But there were others. There was a guy, Ralph, what's his name, who later on was a member of the Chicago City Council, Ralph Metcalf, who uh, won a gold or two also on the American team. Uh, And uh, there is a scene with Hitler sitting in his box in the great Olympic Stadium looking rather displeased as Jesse Owens uh, takes yet another uh, prize, whether the mile or or the relay, I'm not sure. But, uh, and that brings to mind also, of course, the film uh, that, um, what's her name, Leni Riefenstahl does, of the Berlin Olympics, uh, which... um, is also sort of a testament to uh, their idealization of the Grecian uh, style of sport and uh, in a way sort of establishes the assertion of a continuity between ancient Greece, its Olympics, and the full maturation and the full glorification of the true Aryan Olympics in Berlin. But black people are winning many of the prizes. Well... One point that that, that 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 raises is the issue of their their, their relationship to the classics, and, and you know, referring to the, the Olympics yeah. and many of the the, the, the uh, traditions that we think of as the Olympics were were established during uh, the nineteen thirty six Olympics. But um, one of the surprises in this material was the almost complete rejection of, of classical form, uh, whether it be uh, in the ancient Greek. Roman or in uh, Baroque forms that, uh-huh. that Hitler himself was, uh, you know, uh, quite interested in and considered a, an important uh, basis for the style that he wanted to pro- provide a yeah. sense of symmetry and order. Um, but uh, through through the Volkischer Beobachter, there's this emphasis on the uh, on much more on the romantic and twisting even uh, Greek and Roman uh, examples in, toward the Dionysian. And so forth, but the I went. I was looking while uh, uh, just to give you an example of how uh, how vicious this attack on on Koenig could be, and how, and the kind of terms that they would use to uh, to um, articulate the, the the problems that the uh, that they symbolize. If I can just uh, look here for a second, I'm going to let you look while we pause, as we have to for some commercials, and uh, then we'll be directly back, and we can get that quotation. From David B. Dennis, author of Inhumanities. But now to a quick round of commercial messages. This is Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And uh, David Dennis, I know you have a quote for us, but let me offer you a quote before we go forward. Um, From Adolf Hitler, who says, All propaganda must be so popular and on such an intellectual level that even the most stupid of those toward whom it is directed will understand it. Uh, through clever and constant application of propaganda, people can be made to see paradise as hell, and also the other way around, to consider the most wretched sort of life as paradise. 
Uh, and they're using the Volkischer Beobachter and many other organs, essentially, to convey that propaganda constantly. Well, I think it's that repetition. Uh, you know, yeah. Going through this book to write it, and then uh, for anyone who picks it up, you will, you, it's exhausting. And uh, it involves uh, uh, experiencing this sense of, of reiteration. Uh -huh. uh, these themes in, in every form, looking for more and more detailed ways to articulate themes that are familiar to those who, are, mm -hmm. who, who, who know about National Socialism or experienced it, but um, uh, consistently hammering it away according to that principle of, of sloganeering, that if you say something enough, people will come to believe it. But perhaps most importantly, as people like Mossy indicated, they become comfortable with it, become the sort of a liturgy that they're used to hearing. And, uh, and, and that provides that sense of order and stability. The other thing that they really constantly emphasize, quite apart from all the anti-Semitism and all the organic state stuff, is the mystical bond between the leader, Der Führer, no. Hitler, and the people. Do you know this quotation which Hitler used apparently a number of times in various speeches, and it really is uh, very well balanced in German? Uh, he says to the mass... Alles, was ich bin, bin ich nur durch euch. Aber was ihr seid, sind sie nur durch mich. Everything I am, I am, I am only through you. But everything you are, you are only through me. There's a, a unio mystica, a mystical bond between the leader and the people. Well, th that comes through in this material in the sense that... Um in addition to all creators being German and all creators being political and all creators being uh, fundamentally anti-Semitic, but they're also uh, volkstumlich, and that means folksy, yeah. we would say. But it means much more than that. It means a, a, a person of the people. Uh, yeah. And uh, for all of the intellectual pretension of a, of a Goebbels and of a Hitler and Hitler sitting around at, at, at his uh, lunch table and spouting off on absolutely anything and pre, you know, presuming to, to be sophisticate. He wanted to maintain that image of being uh, connected and having risen yeah, up. That yeah. the, the Fuhrer principle involves coming out of the group. And in the early rallies in the beer halls, he would mill around in the audience and then just emerge from it. That was part of the act. Right. And that plays itself out in arguing that someone, even like Mozart, is still writing the magic flute, which is a popular, and he's using popular themes and popular tunes and, 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 and something that's accessible. So you asked earlier about form. It needs to be accessible. Um, uh, ultimately, they relish the romanticism, and one can argue whether or not Wagner was. But it, those contradictions, you just have to get used to. It. They're going to argue that mm -hmm. something like Die Meistersinger is accessible. It depi depicts the folk. It depicts the connection between uh, um, uh, the, the Führer, Hans Sachs, who they can transform yep. into a Führer <coughs> figure, <coughs> and the people. So that, that, uh, that unity that you describe is, is essential mm -hmm. to that. And even intellectuals, even writers, they can't Art for art's sake is the enemy in that sense. Of course, there's a, a pure parallel between that and what uh, the Stalinists were doing uh, over uh, in the Soviet Union at the same time, what they were doing with and about art. Well, I think from a cultural historical standpoint, the term totalitarianism isn't yeah. as loaded as it is in political science. Yeah. Because you know, at some level we see, I mean, it's really an absolutist Baroque sort of form. 
that you're, that you're providing the sense of stability and order and structure, a leadership, a hierarchy, whether it be social or racial uh, or economic or the party itself that gives people a sense of a systematic uh, environment. Stalin condemned the music of, for a while of Shostakovich because it didn't have a tune you could sing. You've got a quotation about another uh, composer. That right, coming back to that case of, of uh, the attack against uh, Ernst Koenig, a, yeah. uh, a, a composer active in the, 90, uh, in the 20s. And uh, I, I, th- I thought we should uh, wade through this, as it were. Because Let's hear it. really the devil is in the details, and that's what this book provides. It mm-hmm. provides uh, a, a real feeling for the, the, the depths, we'll say, to which they would go uh, in, in their... Uh, uh, attacks and also in the promotion of, an, of a German ideal in, in contrast to the things that they detested. So um, here we have attack on, uh, on Koenig's uh, Johnny uh, Strikes Up. Um, the uh, the Volkische Beobachter made apocalyptic associations between contemporary issues and Weimar-era operas. Fortunately, Wagner had provided an antidote. Siegfried didn't sing out of the dark depths of nighttime decadence, and Wotan didn't wallow in filth with jazz accompaniment, as Krennic's characters did. An affirmation of Wagner's idealism was more urgent than ever. This meant making a clear distinction between the dark blue tones of the Valhalla motif and the cacophonous howling of the saxophone that was more appropriate for accompanying lewd dances around a golden calf. The modern barbarization process, a campaign of the impure against culture, operating under the cloak of a clinking and clanking pseudo-civilization, was all Alberich's work. So that's Alberich, the, the, uh, the Nibelung in, uh, in, in Wagner's ring cycle. Uh, those who were choking on a disgusting taste in their mouths, those who were not of this modern world, had to band together under Wagner's sign in a new brotherhood of the grail. The Antichrist with his wild bedlam and the pandemonium of big city nightclubs. Don't you hear him in the agonizing sounds of this music for cannibals that debases sacred rhythms into mechanical beats? Mammon with hanging jowls and fleshy fingers decorated with the gold of the Nibelungen horde was being heralded with the hooting and howling of hundreds of thousands of saxophones screaming out around the globe in his honor. Truly, we say to you, if you don't take this seriously, you're going to go down in the fall with them. Now is the time to recognize and fight the enemy. Fight with word and deed against the fate that is approaching. How did that attitude affect the performance of the jazz that was flourishing in the Western world in the 1920s and 30s? Well, I would have to defer to Michael uh, Cotter or Cater's book on, on, the, on jazz in the Third Reich. Because there were jazz bands. There were, in Germany. They, of course, that, that's, a, that's an intricate and interesting uh, And the saxophones were, were flowing. And, yeah. and uh, if people were listening to illegal radio, it was also often in order to hear big band music. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no question of it. But uh, this uh, millennial view, I mean, they really, uh, this, this runs through it, that, that there is this sense that uh, um, modernist culture, uh, was an indication of of the decline, and that it was, had speeded up intensively after the uh, after the First World War. Another area in which they asserted that, and they had a great uh, central figure doing it for them, Albert Speer, was architecture. Absolutely, absolutely, and. Uh, um, the 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 paper itself doesn't cover it as much as or as as much as I would have imagined. There mm-hmm. uh, there are the uh, 
occasional references to Bauhaus as being uh, un-German. Uh, of course, they were still building you know, military installations yeah. and everything else using Bauhaus techniques and materials simply because it's cheaper, just as it became uh, uh, prevalent. We did a program here only a, only a week or so ago about the single leading figure from the Bauhaus movement in Germany, Mies van der Rohe, mm -hmm. who came here in '38 mm -hmm. and is responsible essentially for the look of modern Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. And... Uh, I mean, George Mossy, who uh, was so articulate about so many of these things, uh, would chuckle that, of course, they were going ahead and building things and when they needed to yeah. for you know, factories and uh, 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 b barracks and so on. Uh, but uh, officially, uh, they rejected for the pitched roof, we'll say. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that con that contradiction runs through their responses to modernism, yeah. and uh, we can see this all the way through uh, their coverage of, of of social realism, where they reject uh, people like Heinrich Mann and they reject people like Courbet uh, um, um, uh, uh, and so forth. But on the on the other hand, they 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 look for German realists who touch the folk and describe the yeah. conditions of the working class. We are shortly going to pause for an update on the news, but it is time to invite telephone calls as well. Any questions you've got about uh, the matters that we've been discussing or more broadly about the history of the rise, uh, the prevalence, and then the ultimate fall of Nazism, and the parallel movement uh, in the Soviet Union, which has a sort of a similar dynamic. Any questions and or comments of that sort, we'd be delighted to hear from you. The number, of course, is 312-981-7200. 312-981-7200. If you are listening at some great distance over the Internet and want to join us via email, the email address is extension720 at wgnradio.com. Extension 720 as one word at WGNRadio.com. And again, for direct calls, get in there now. The number is 312-981-7200. To the newsroom and Paula Cooper. This is Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And directly back to David Dennis, drawing from his new book, Inhumanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. And directly on to your calls, to David Dennis at 312-981-7200. First up is Jim. Good evening, Jim. You're on the air. Oh, hi. Thank you. Uh, it's a great topic. Um, I, I wondered if you had uh, come across the uh, the book called The Third Reich in Power by Evans. Um, it's uh, Richard Evans wrote a book, and there's a whole section on the sort of uh, on exactly what you're talking about, but it, especially on the physics. You know where they tried to subtract uh, the Jewish contributions to science. And it wasn't just Einstein. They they prevented uh, Werner Heisenberg from uh, a major post in uh, the in the Nazi uh, science. And um, they also uh, tried to what they called Aryan science and, and German math and German chemistry. And those were completely failures. And what what had happened then is that the uh, German scientists became shunned and isolated in the international community and almost a laughingstock because they were if they were prevented from using all the science available to them, they had dead ends in their own research. And so I, I just wanted to put that out. 
Um, That's a very interesting question. Let's get a response. Well, yes, Jim. Um, I, I, that's clearly part of the record, and and I and I defer to Evan's uh, section on that. It's uh, a, an important part of the well, the background to their failure to produce a bomb, for instance. Now, what I have here is specifically what was appe- what appeared in the Volkischer Beobachter. Uh, so, the Heisenberg case, for instance, wasn't uh, specifically addressed. It should, addressed should be pointed out: Werner Heisenberg was not a Jew. And, uh, no, no, he wasn't. But he remained he, in Germany through all those years. He essentially ran their atom bomb project, though he may but, have intended to prevent its fulfillment. Right, and he right exactly. But he he was in, but he sympathized with keeping the Jewish science sure. in, and yeah. he was prevented from advancing in certain areas because of that. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess I didn't know that much about his uh, his work with the atom bomb, but um, you know, Milta, you know, we had a. a a little thing in our newspaper up here in Wisconsin about your moving on. Have uh, I, I know that isn't probably a topic of discussion, but do, have you made plans? Uh, um, I was pretty upset about that when I read it because... Well, it's not something to be discussed tonight, uh, but uh, something may be disclosed in fairly short time. But okay, I do, I do thank I you, sir, the for the call. last of its kind. <laughs> so, thank you very much for the call. Show, yeah. And we'll go quickly to the next. The next is Jay, I do believe. And here he is. Good evening, Jay. Good evening, Milt. I was just wondering if uh, the German youth that were called Swing Kids, I saw a movie about it, and I just was wondering if that was an actual event during the uh, Nazi regime, and if they uh, were so objectioned, uh, objected to it so much that they uh, would just go into these different clubs and beat these kids silly. Huh. Swing in the 1930s, Glenn Miller, Tommy Dorsey, etc., were they popular over in Germany? Well, I think that film is based on, a, on, on conditions and a situation, whether the specifics of the story uh, are, uh-huh. are validated or not. But uh, the, the, the book to see, uh, to read about that, is Michael Cater's uh, book on uh, jazz in the Third Reich. And uh, he, he goes into that in great detail. And, uh, but the swing, the, the, I, swing th- I do believe that the... I mean, that, that pop music was powerful among youth, and it was powerful across uh, uh, across the Atlantic and the British, and the German kids and uh, adults wanted to hear it. So uh, I think uh, there's some um, certainty that they were listening to illegal radio broadcasts, not mm-hmm. to get information about what was going on politically, but so that they could hear that music. Our thanks to the caller. Uh, we are ready for more calls. Uh, the lines are open. Any questions you've got concerning... Uh, the Nazi control of uh, the arts and, for that matter, the sciences, uh, and, for that matter, uh, parallel movements elsewhere in the world. There have been other totalitarian regimes who played with the arts and decided what is and what is not uh, appropriate for their latest revolution. Not only uh, uh, the great case of the USSR, but uh, other dictatorships that rise and fall. I was in Greece for a while when the four colonels were ruling Greece. It was a coup d'etat for the state, but there was much pressure to avoid, um, I don't know that they had particularly censored and eliminated certain Western writers, but there was some real pressure not to talk about freedom, not to talk about uh, uh, government as potentially fallible or or culpable. Uh, everybody was very quiet. One or two journalists I met at the time explained to me that this was not a time to raise your head. And uh, that may be a rule generally. 
depending upon what political systems demand uh, of those who practice the popular as well as the high arts. At any rate, if you want to call us to put a question or offer a thought or share a memory from those times, if you're old enough, 312-981-7200, 312-981-7200. I meant to ask you, in the, those last few calls uh, bring this to mind, what about uh, the movie industry? Movies were very well made and were very popular in Weimar, Germany, before the Nazis come to power. Uh, and certainly they made a lot of movies during the Nazi years. What are they like? Well, there's no question of that, and there's a good literature uh, on, the, on the development of uh, cinema and the use of cinema by Goebbels in particular, very mm -hmm. much involved with that, and uh, uh, the develop, develop, or the extension of an already you know, important German uh, film industry. Uh, now, my focus was on how they were incorporating what they perceived to be this tradition of the past mm -hmm. and, and, and developing that as an idealized uh, 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 image of what the German future could be. So my focus wasn't so much on jazz and their, and their reception of, uh, of film at the time. The, 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 the single film that gets a lot of attention in, in this book is the film uh, made of All Quiet on the Western Front. And they were absolutely furious about Remark's book. And then when the movie came out, uh, produced by Lowe's, um, they were uh, doubly uh, infuriated. And uh, it was an important uh, point um, f uh, where the d they were able to drive a lot of media attention uh, because of the release of the film and then their demonstrations against that. And it, uh, uh, Well, the and film so that portrays uh, frontline German soldiers in World War One. That's right. And their growing disillusion. That's right, and considered to be an absolute, uh, you know, a treacherous representation yeah. of the, of, uh, of the German military. And one of their arguments is, well, German military are shown as uh, either absolutely vicious and cruel, or sniveling and cowardly. Yeah. Uh, whereas, and uh, British and American uh, soldiers are never shown to be such. Uh, so one of, that's a line that stands out there, and in, uh, in comparison of the of the uh, cinematic representation, which there may be some accuracy yeah. in that. <laughs> um, we're going to pause a last quick round of commercial messages, then right back to your calls to David Dennis. The number remains 312-981-7200. And for email, extension720 at wgnradio.com. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And right back to David Dennis and right back to your calls to him on 312-981-7200. Next up is Craig. Good evening. You're on the air. Gentlemen, uh, a composer I have always been somewhat intrigued with, Carl Orff, but um, a little perplexed by some of the things I've heard about him, and I wonder if your guest could... Uh, Tell us uh, the truth about uh, Orff. Did he uh, throw in with the uh, Nazis? Was he uh, in supporting of all this stuff, or did he just kind of go along to get along at the time? And I'll hang up and listen to you on the air. If you could address that, I'd appreciate it very much. We appreciate the call. As a matter of fact, you could add to that name, uh, Richard Strauss, uh, who remained very honored and remained productive as a great composer during the Nazi years. Well, the, uh, I, I, the, the person to read on this is Michael Cater. He's gone through very mm -hmm. carefully and documented the, the lives and careers of, the, of, uh, of living composers during the Third Reich. And 
uh, his works unsurpassed in that regard. Now, in the case of Orff, there, there, uh, you know, there are troubling indications that he uh, he did um, you know, contribute, to, for instance, a new version of uh, music uh, to accompany uh, *Midsummer's Night's Dream*. Uh, meant, you know, the implicitly meant to replace uh, Mendelssohn's. Um, and uh, I know that uh, the Cater goes very carefully through to determine just how committed Orff was in that sense. What I can tell you is that the uh, that the focus of Weobacher criticism of him was uh, was divided. It uh, uh, felt that uh, um, uh, Carmina Barana was uh, unnecessarily complicated. Uh, although it did tap into uh, elements of uh, of these early German uh, texts that, uh, or oh, Latin texts, but uh, of German priests that they found uh, mm-hmm. satisfying in a folkish sense. What about Strauss? Uh, he was really quite honored by the Nazis, was he not? Wasn't he the head of the, the League of well, German he Composers? Became, yes, or he, beca- like that? he becomes the head of uh, the the Reichmusik, comma. Yeah, and. Um, uh, appears in in, 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 in Nazi uh, uniform and, uh, and actually in yeah, Nazi uniform. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and again, uh, Kaiser goes through that in in, in great depth uh, in the in the in the coverage of him in the Volkischer Beobachter. You yeah. have a a, um, an, a a very interesting trajectory where you go from him being really ostracized as a modernist for his early uh, works, such as Electra and Salome, and uh, in, and considered really one of those uh, influenced by modernist uh, you know Jewish inf- uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, troubling th- uh, elements. Uh, but then, when he uh, makes the appropriate <laughs> statements and then and then assumes this position, the paper. Does a, a 180 and starts supporting mm-hmm. him uh, outright and presents him as a important Germanic. Figure. But he went on after the war, and I suppose he then denounced the Nazis, did he not? Well, the the uh, again, Cater's the one to see exactly what he mm-hmm. said. So I don't want to uh, go on record one way or the other about his uh, about the specifics. But his uh, uh, daughter-in-law, I believe, was. Uh, uh, was arrested as as uh, a Jewess and uh, oh, really? and uh, and taken to a concentration camp, mm-hmm. and I believe that uh, he actually tried to intervene and was una- unable to do so. Yeah. So it hit home. It hit home. We go back to the phones, and next up, <coughs> Bob joins us. Good evening. You're on the air. Oh, good evening. Um, I'm wondering whether your guests would agree or disagree with the thought that the Allies were lucky that. Hitler was an anti-Semite because without it, uh, he would have had the bomb long before the Allies. Well, I think that goes to the, this history of uh, of uh, the, this uh, uh, rejection of uh, of the theory of relativity as Jewish, and uh, it's clear in the paper that as early as 1923, uh, they were doing so and yeah. making that uh, a, a part of their. Uh, their 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 public appeal. Keep in mind that these articles were written for the general public. So what's what's actually interesting about them is that they appear in the in the daily newspaper, and therefore, uh, therefore, for uh, average readers, they're not for the scientific community or the artistic community or the academic. Community it is a point, though, that uh, as well that uh, many of the people working on the Manhattan Project. Which gave us the uh, the first atom bomb were German Jewish physicist refugees. Uh, <laughs> Oppenheimer was an American a Jew to be sure. He couldn't have he ran the whole project uh, and a great physicist. 
But uh, yeah, there's a lot of Jewish participation in the making of uh, the first atom bomb. Our thanks to the caller, and next to, um, let me see, next we go to Mark, I believe. Mark, you are on the air. Good evening. Uh, yeah, uh, I've heard both, uh, or read rather, uh, descriptions of both Nazi Germany and the uh, Soviet Union as uh, modernist utopias. And I'm just wondering how that squares with the idea, of, at least of the Nazis, of um, rejecting uh, modernism. I mean, how can you be... Uh, you can you can embrace modernism and you can be a, a modernist utopian or a modernist utopia. Well, let me go back. Uh, how can you reject modernism on the one hand and be described as a modernist utopia on the other? Somebody's got to be right. Somebody's got to be wrong here. And I'm just wondering if there's a way to square this particular circle. Well, I put, think you've put your uh, finger on one of these paradoxical issues that are at the core of this uh, analysis of, of Nazi culture or the background of German culture leading to this, and that is that um, um, at the same time as, as incorporating these folkish, neo-romantic views, rejecting the city, rejecting the machine, reject, rejecting industry and modernization in general. Of course, they are building the Autobahn. They are developing uh, the Volkswagen. They are developing uh, uh, military uh, hardware that, uh, was, uh, that was necessary. And uh, uh, th this, has been, uh, this has been more or less summarized and, and deeply analyzed by uh, a scholar named Jeffrey Herf, in his uh, important book called Reactionary Modernism, where he, he goes through this, you know, this complex paradoxical permutations and how they argued their way around that. Which in my book, what I, what I would say the, 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 is uh, the, the, the thing to keep in mind is for all of these references to the past, for all this efforts to ground uh, National Socialism and the Germany that National Socialism would supposedly bring about in the past, it's all designed to give an indication of what the future would be, that they're going to somehow revive this purity, this, this soulfulness of, of, let's say, the romantic generation in particular. And that's going to be revived and rekindled and, 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 and be the path toward recovery for a Germany in crisis. So it is oriented toward the future. Are they equating modernism, though, with, with Jews in some form or fashion? Cultural modernism. Cultural modernism. So there I would, uh, I would, uh, I would use uh, the, I would distinguish between modernization, which would be the, 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 the elements that are driving toward the industrial, uh, industrialization and urbanization of society. Modernity is the state of, existence that results within that. And then modernism would be arts that insist that we should be more comfortable with that, that world. And then and the Hitler uh, uh, rejects that outright. And in fact, in Mein Kampf, he, he basically articulates that whereas he had heard of anti-Semitism and that it was something that was in the air in Vienna as a youth, it was when he noticed and began to understand it as responsible for this cultural modernism of the city, of the, of the streets, which he was not uh, enjoying after he'd been rejected from art school. And so he, uh, on, on a couple of levels, uh, 
discovers anti-Semitism through this personal rejection of modernism, which he felt, by the way, was partly responsible for him having been rejected from the art and architecture career that he had uh, hoped to go, uh, hoped to have. Sir, we thank you for the call. We'll work in one or two more quick calls. Next one up is Dave. And you are on the air, sir. Good evening. Are you there? Going once and going twice and gone. Dave isn't there, therefore we will go, uh, let me see, we'll go to the other Dave uh, on this line. Good evening. You are on the air. Uh, hi. Yes, sir. Um, I've always viewed art as um, you know, more of an individual thing than something that the state could control and, and um, harness for for uh, use of the uh, Government ends, you know, and the states ends. Um, I mean, doesn't that really always end badly when when art becomes something that um, that's endorsed by the state and uh, um, kind of nurtured in in the particular direction that the state would like to see it go, rather than you know be be something organic uh, that comes from the individual. Um, I, I don't know if I'm on on your level or not, but I'm enjoying the, the discussion. Uh, maybe you'd care to comment on that. Well, I think this is, uh, you know, the case study in support of your, of your position. Uh, and in, in the end, um, uh, setting aside the, the, the fact that this uh, use of, of culture, this, this abuse of culture, this incorporating of culture for these politi- political reasons ultimately p- probably did have the effect of convincing at least some Germans that what they were doing was in the interest of beauty, uh, even to the point of uh, of the actions on the on the Eastern Front and behind it. Um, but um, um, it's clear that the leading Nazis themselves, including Hitler and Goebbels, ultimately concluded that it had not resulted in a a creative renaissance. They were troubled, they were disappointed by the efforts uh, into the Third Reich uh, to produce something anew based on the past. Um, and uh, uh, my chapter, uh, my penultimate uh, section, uh, it covers this sort of stillborn renaissance that they had called for, which is full of names that uh, most of us would probably not uh, recognize. <laughs> and ultimately, uh, the only uh, result of this uh, was the war itself that they were uh, able to marshal the f- the uh, the spirit and the and the and the justification to undertake that and uh, it ends up in, in rubble right um, it, um, okay well I thank you for your response I'm listening in North Florida by the way which I happen to pick up your signal uh, tonight and uh, thanks again we thank you sir for the call uh, you can pick up the signal any place around the world on the Internet. And you have one more night to do so. Tomorrow will be the last night uh, of this rather long run of Extension 720 on WGN Radio. And uh, there won't be any guests except um, some callers, I suppose, and we'll play clips of some favorite programs and reminisce just a bit about the history of the program. But uh, uh, we'll try to do that with a certain lightness of spirit, which has always been my intrinsic uh, nature, of course. Let me see. I don't think we have time left for another caller. 
uh, but uh, we do have just about two minutes. Um, of course, this whole book of yours is um, um, viewed methodologically, is tapping a resource that isn't commonly used. Newspapers are used, but not every word printed in a newspaper over how many years? Uh, 25 years. 25 years. Yeah. That's a lot of reading. A focusche beobachter. Well, um, I, I, would, uh, I would say that uh, this is uh, one of the, you know, the values of this exploration. We, uh, scholars uh, listening will be aware that uh, many of these issues have been addressed and, 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 and some of the stories are fairly familiar. But what we get here is this, first of all, this detail. We get a, a, a really a comprehensive mm -hmm. summary of how they covered many of the major figures and, and the specifics of, that they did, but also that it was directed toward the general populace. And it is a book of incredible interest to me, uh, incredible interest. It's quite believable that this would be uh, quite fascinating. Uh, so, by David B. Dennis, who has been our guest tonight, In Humanities, Nazi Interpretations of Western Culture. And that is just published by... Cambridge University Press. As I said, we'll be back again tomorrow at 10 with some clips from uh, programs that uh, I and our producer uh, both uh, think of some special worth or of some special interest. And we'll say for the last time, uh, a good night and a cordial good night to all, as I say right now, as we close for the evening. The Voice of Chicago, 720 WGN, Chicago.